We're going to continue in our series in the book of Acts. And uh, we're, gonna, uh, we're just going to read like select portions from Acts chapter 13 and 14. Uh, this is Acts chapter 13, starting at verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And then the end of chapter 14. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been uh, commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. This is God's word. Uh, let me pray for us. God, we thank you just for your word, and we pray that you would not only instruct us, but uh, uh, transform us uh, in our hearts. Give us a sense of your power, of your love, of your grace uh, as we uh, look at this uh, text, and uh, we ask that you would speak to us uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we are in the book of Acts, and uh, the book of Acts mainly is about how the Holy Spirit was sent in the early days of the church and kind of formed the early church. And we are in a section where now there's like this uh, directional change and expansion in terms of the movement of the gospel where the Holy Spirit sends Paul and Barnabas on their very first missionary journey. And we're not going to look at the entire missionary journey, so uh, I do want to just summarize it briefly and you know, sermons are not supposed to be like lectures, so I, it might sound like a little lectureish in the beginning, but um, I thought it would actually be helpful to visually look at Paul and Barnabas's travel route. So uh, here's a map. All right, so basically you have uh, Jerusalem, which is down here, okay? This is where um, I guess the, the gospel movement begins. But now Paul and Barnabas are up here in Antioch, and I think this whole region is like modern-day uh, Turkey. I think that's probably included in Turkey. I'm not 100% sure. I think Turkey is like this or something. But anyway, uh, they start in Antioch, and then what they do is they set sail for Salamis, which is on the island of Cyprus. Then they go to Paphos. Then they sail to Perga. Then they go to Antioch, but it's not the same Antioch as here. It's a different Antioch, so don't get that confused. And then they go to uh, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, and then after that, you know, they do their, um, they go in the reverse, and then they end up going back to Antioch. So that's the entirety of the first missionary journey. That's what Acts chapter 13 and 14 uh, tells us about, 
And a lot of things happen as they make that journey. Uh, they get persecuted. You know, Paul almost gets like stoned to death. And if you think about that experience, going into a city and almost getting stoned to death, uh, and then they return to that city where the persecution happened, uh, it's uh, quite interesting, quite fascinating. Now, the only reason why I wanted to show the map is not so you have like an intellectual understanding of like the geography of Paul's missionary journey, but I guess all I want you to see is uh, the movement of the gospel now, right? It starts in one place, but now big picture-wise, what is the Holy Spirit doing? The Holy Spirit is now right, expanding westward, and in subsequent missionary journeys, uh, it'll go to like what it says up there in Asia, right? It'll continue to go westward. So, The gospel is growing, and the gospel is expanding, and uh, that's where we are in terms of the book of Acts. Now, today what I want to do is I want to focus on two aspects of this entire story or the missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. Uh, The first thing I want to look at is I want to look at the reaction to the gospel and basically how it subsequently shaped Paul's own sense of ministry and his own calling in ministry. And then second, I want to look at the conclusion of their journey when they return back to Antioch, the very church that sent them, and how they report about uh, the work that God had done uh, uh, on their journey. So first, uh, let's look at the reaction to the gospel. Now, what Paul would typically do on these missionary journeys, he seems to go into like these Jewish synagogues, which were places uh, where teaching happened, and he goes there and he starts to teach. He starts to preach and proclaim. So he did that in Salamis in the passage that we looked at last week. He does that in Antioch in Pisidia, the second Antioch. He does that in Iconium. And if you're wondering why he would do something like that, um, it's not necessarily because he has like a Jewish background and therefore maybe he knew people and he could connect with the folks in the synagogue. Although that may be true, but uh, I think he's doing it for more theological reasons because the Jewish people, they were the original people of God God made a promise to the people of Israel through Abraham. God revealed his will through the law to uh, Moses. And so in Paul's mind, the coming of Jesus is now this continuation and this fulfillment of God's big plan of salvation. And the plan goes to the Jews first. So you see in places like Romans 1, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, then also to the Greek. Okay? So that's his understanding. So that's probably why uh, one of the reasons why he enters into synagogues is he is actually trying to tell the Jewish people, like give them an update on on God's plan of salvation, right? And he says, hey, uh, the Messiah has come. Jesus is the Messiah and he has come. And so in his first recorded address on this missionary journey, he addresses them. He says, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. And then he begins to give a summary of like the, uh, the Hebrew story and interweaves like uh, the narrative of Jesus into that story. And after Paul gives this talk or the sermon, you know, people are kind of like, very, they're very stirred and they're saying, oh, please, 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 Paul, come back next week and uh, speak these things again. And this is where the passage that we read, this is where it picks up. He comes back on the next Sabbath. And we're told, like, the whole city, right? That's, that's kind of, like, phenomenal. The whole city comes and gathers to hear the word of the Lord. And there's certainly, like, this kind of buzz that's going around. And people really want to hear uh, what Paul has to say. And it's at this time, right, there's some Jews in the crowd. Uh, there's some Jews there. And they see, like, these crowds of people wanting to hear what Paul has to say about Jesus the, the Messiah. And what ends up happening is, uh, the passage tells us, they're filled with jealousy. And because they're filled with jealousy, 
Now they begin to argue against Paul. They begin to contradict the things that were spoken to Paul or by Paul. Now, why would they be jealous? Why are they filled with jealousy here? Are they jealous because Paul and Barnabas are like getting so much attention and it's like a popularity contest and they're like, hey, we want some attention too. Uh, And so let's contradict. No, I don't think that's actually why they're jealous. Uh, We oftentimes think of jealousy as like an expression of envy. And so if someone has like uh, the job that we want or the life that we want or something that we want, then we think of that as like, oh, you're a jealous person because you're envious of what somebody else has. But jealousy can also come in the form of uh, exclusivity. Uh, You may be familiar with passages in the Bible where it says God is a jealous God. The reason why God is described as a jealous God is because he is in this covenantal relationship with the people of Israel And that relationship was meant to be exclusive in that people were not supposed to go and worship other gods. Uh, Their worship was supposed to be exclusively for the God of Israel because of this covenant relationship. And therefore, when Israel created the golden calf and they began to worship this golden calf, they were being unfaithful to that exclusive relationship. And so, I I don't know, the closest analogy that's appropriate for that is probably marriage. Uh, Sometimes jealousy is inappropriate. And sometimes, yes, jealousy can be very toxic. Uh, Jealousy can be a symptom of uh, someone who's too controlling. But I also think there are appropriate times to be jealous. So for example, in a marriage relationship, I think it's entirely appropriate for a husband or a wife to be jealous if their spouse is unfaithful or acting like uh, sharing the intimacy that only is reserved for a spouse with another person because that's supposed to be an exclusive relationship. And so therefore, uh, maybe an inappropriate um, example of jealousy is if you're not in a marriage, but you're in a friendship or uh, you have like different colleagues at work and they're expecting some kind of exclusive covenant relationship and they're like, hey, you can't be friends with other people. You're my friend, right? Or hey, you can't work at other companies. Like you belong to me. That's, that's an inappropriate <laughs> expression of jealousy. Why? Because there is no covenant. There is no exclusive relationship there. But I do have another example that might make it a little bit more concrete in terms of the perspective of the Jewish people. Uh, You know, my kids, uh, if I went to their school and uh, I had ice cream and I said, I'm going to bring ice cream and serve it to everybody in the school, to every classroom. Um, But first, I'm going to go to my kids' classroom, you know, because they're my kids, and then I'm going to give them the ice cream first, right? So I go to the school, I deliver the ice cream, they love it, they're like, oh, I feel so special because, uh, you know, my, my dad brought us ice cream, and they probably feel more special because other classes didn't get it, and then I tell them, okay, now I'm leaving, and I'm going to go dis- uh, distribute the ice cream to the other classrooms, they might get jealous, right? They might say, wait, what, what are you doing? Why are you going to give the other classrooms uh, this ice cream? Uh, they thought the promises of ice cream exclusively belonged to them, and they didn't realize the ice cream was meant for the entire school. That's the Jewish people, right, in this context. For the longest time, they had this uh, covenantal exclusive relationship with God, and it probably made them feel like special, right? And even though Paul is telling them what God's plan was for the Gentiles from their own scriptures, from the Old Testament itself, they still thought, hey, God's promises are meant exclusively for us. It's not meant for other people. It's not meant for these other nations. And so Paul and Barnabas, they come along, they start telling people, hey, God's original plan is not just for salvation for Israel, 
But God's plan is actually much more inclusive. It's for salvation to the ends of the earth. And some of the Jewish people don't react well to that. When Paul starts telling them that Jesus was a Christ, his purpose is not to make Israel into this wonderful political power, but it's actually to extend forgiveness of sins and salvation to all people, to all nations. They don't like it. Right? It's like finding out, hey, the ice cream is not just for us, it's for everybody else too. And so uh, they respond by saying, no, 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 Paul. Like what you're saying is wrong. And they try to contradict the things that Paul is saying. They're saying, hey, no, 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 no. These promises are not for the Gentiles, but it's just for us. These promises are just for the people of Israel, and that's why they're jealous. Their jealousy leads them to reject Paul, to revile him, uh, which, by the way, the Greek word is blasphemeo, so right to blaspheme him. And by rejecting Paul, they ultimately reject the good news of what God is ultimately doing through the crucified Messiah and the resurrected Christ. Now, the point that I find interesting here, and uh, it's a point that I wrestle with, so it's not necessarily like um, I don't have an answer here, but I find it interesting, is uh, actually how Paul and Barnabas responds to this, how they respond to the Jews. So they say in verse 46, they say, It was necessary that the word of God was spoken first to you, meaning to the Jewish people, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. In other words, they can see the effect that the preaching of the gospel about Jesus as the Messiah is having on the Jews and actually on the Gentiles. The Jewish people here, they are rejecting it and they're persecuting Paul and Barnabas because of it. And the Gentiles, maybe they're, they're there just to kind of like overhear what Paul has to say, but what the passage says is the Gentiles believe the word They are rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. They respond very positively to it. And when I read this, I started to think, you know, this journey actually seems to have solidified Paul's own sense of call, Paul's own vision for his ministry towards the Gentiles. And it made me wonder, uh, should the reaction to, uh, you know, the preaching of the gospel or to his ministry, should that be a component in terms of shaping uh, one's vision for life and ministry. And I don't know. It's a question that I had, though. Now, let me say, one of the reasons why the book of Acts can be a little bit tricky to interpret and also tricky to preach from is because there are a lot of things that are descriptive and there are things that are prescriptive. Uh, much of it is descriptive, which means, like, it's a narrative. It's just kind of telling us what happened. But just because it tells us what happened doesn't necessarily mean it's telling us what we should do, Right? Uh, I, I remember, you know, counseling a couple and uh, this couple just kept saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm just like an emotional person or I'm just an angry person or I'm just an impatient person. That's why I reacted emotionally or that's why I reacted angrily. That's why I reacted impatiently. And, uh, you yeah, th- they just kept kind of like saying this and then, <coughs> uh, I don't know, it just came to me, I think, because I was like thinking about uh, I- interpretation in Acts. But I said, well, don't let that which is descriptive be prescriptive. In other words, just because one could describe you as an emotional person doesn't necessarily mean you have to respond emotionally, right? Uh, just because one might describe you as an angry person or an impatient person doesn't necessarily mean, right, you have to respond in that way. You can try to respond in another way because the prescription is uh, to be patient 
or the prescription is to respond in love, or the prescription is to respond soberly. And likewise, I think we can look at how Paul and Barnabas respond to the rejection of the gospel from the Jews and the reception of the gospel from the Gentiles, and maybe we kind of say, well, is that prescriptive for us? Is that what we ought to do? Or is it just describing what they did? I don't really, again, I don't have an answer for that. I don't know. Now, some of you may know, uh, you know, I guess throughout the course of my life, I had thought about doing ministry in Japan even before Jen and I met. And then when we got married, uh, I guess that was like always an idea. Should we like go to Japan for like missions work or something like that? And Japan, of course, is a very difficult place to do ministry. A lot of missionaries go there and a lot of missionaries quit because there's like so little fruit there. And part of the reason why I was like, oh, maybe I should go to Japan for uh, missionary work is because uh, there's so few Christian believers in Japan. I think it's like less than, I think it's like around 0.1% or something, right? So not even 1%, but a tenth of a percent. And I was like, oh, man, surely that must mean Japan needs more missionaries. Conversely, what was also happening during that time is uh, Christianity was exploding in places like China. And I I made visits to China. um, And it was, like, so amazing to see some of the things that were happening in China. I remember uh, during that time, everybody wanted to go to China and be a missionary in China because there was so much vitality and so much fruitfulness in China. Uh, One of my earlier experiences visiting China, I was... uh, (coughs) I was teaching a group of Chinese believers like in this like small tiny room and we <coughs> you know we were with them like literally talking for like 4 to 5 hours in a row because they just kept asking questions they just wanted to know more and more and more about the Bible like that's how hungry they were for the word and then I came back to the US and I'm like oh man in this context you know if I talk for like more than 30 minutes or 45 minutes people start to get like annoyed like what is it taking so long right and so, like, there's this great hunger. And, of course, you, like, you want to be part of that. And it's, like, incredible to see, like, God uh, doing his work in these places. And I kind of juxtapose, like, those two situations. And I, I think, I ask myself, would Paul have uh, shaken off the dust of his feet in Japan and, like, gone to, to China? I don't know, right? Maybe. I don't know. I don't really have a definitive answer here. But uh, I, I guess I, I do consider perhaps the response to the gospel should be maybe one of the things to consider when we think about our own sense of mission. And I, would, I wouldn't say that definitively because of the whole descriptive, prescriptive thing, uh, but maybe something to consider. But in choosing to focus his mission on the Gentiles, uh, <clears throat> what that also means, of course, is he's kind of turning away his attention from the Jews. It's his own people, right? But sometimes a focused mission means your calling is not necessarily to everyone, uh, sometimes uh, a focus on mission also means you're, you're turning your attention away from a particular people, maybe even your own people, uh, because of where God is sending you. At the end of chapter 14, we have the conclusion of Paul and Barnabas' uh, first missionary journey, and they end up returning to Antioch. This is the place where they first initially hear the Holy Spirit in the context of a prayer meeting uh, and a worship Uh, gathering of five people and they hear from the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit sends them. And when they return to Antioch, they basically give a report on like, right, that map I showed you, that journey that they were making. And what it says in verse 27, when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. 
couple things that I want to point out in this verse. First, the report is on what God had done. There is this deep recognition that God is the one who did the work of ministry. God is the one who opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Now, why do they believe that? I think it actually has a lot to do with how they approached their mission and how they started their mission. If you remember last week or if you were here last week, how did their mission start? They worshipped, they prayed, they fasted together, and in that context, they heard from the Holy Spirit and the Spirit sent them out. I only point that out to emphasize that mission begins with the Spirit and not with us. Uh, I imagine for our church, as we are in a season of considering our mission, we could say, well, you know, we, uh, we have a lot of people in a certain demographic. There's a lot of Asian Americans here. There's a lot of people who have uh, families and kids here. There's a lot of people who, are, uh, who have like white-collar professional jobs here or in a certain socioeconomic uh, um, bracket. And uh, we kind of begin with us and we say, therefore, right, this is the people that we should reach or we are able to reach, right? And I'm not saying that's wrong, but that actually wouldn't fit the context of someone like Paul. Because you see, Paul was a very zealous Pharisee. So we could say, Paul should have gone to, out to like his own people, to other religious Pharisees, because he knows where they're coming from. And he would be equipped to convince them that Jesus was a Christ. And yeah, maybe that's true. But that wasn't ultimately how Paul approached his mission. He prayed, he relied on the Spirit, and he expected God to be the one to open doors. I think you begin with yourself when you consider mission. Later on, if there's fruit, uh, you begin to take credit for it. Or later on, if there's little fruit, uh, you begin to feel a sense of failure for it. But I actually think the way you start is incredibly important. It has to be a spiritual endeavor, and we have to have a sense that the Spirit is sending us to these people, and therefore will open these doors. Now, there is another side to that. Notice how uh, the report said they declared all that God had done with them, okay, with them. So it's not as if they themselves didn't have a role. Even though God did the work, he did it with Paul and Barnabas as participants. Sometimes I will uh, make banana bread when we have bananas, too many bananas, and they get too ripe, and like you don't want to eat them, so what do you do with them? You make some banana bread, right? And the kids like to get involved and help make the banana bread. So uh, I don't know, if you, any of you ever have uh, baked with kids, uh, they don't really like do that much to help, right? <laughs> Right, I'm the one that comes up with the idea. Right, I get the recipe. I gather all the materials. Right, I do the measurements. And then I say, hey, okay, put that and put it in the bowl. Um, do that, like crush the bananas and start mixing it up. Right? So they, they get to participate. And without their participation, of course, the banana bread doesn't get made. But I think at the end of the day, I'm the one that's actually really making the banana bread. <laughs> I don't know if that's like a perfect analogy to, to the way God works. But, you know, in that sense, right? <laughs> God is the one who's initiating the mission. He has to be. Uh, if we initiate it, uh, there's no hope. Uh, God is the one who opens the door. He has to be. Because if he doesn't open the doors, there's no hope. And yet, God 
allows us, maybe even enables us to participate in his mission so that we can you know, have a front row seat to all the good things that God can do. In mission, God does a work. He opens a door. We participate with him in that work. And therefore, he simply asks us to be faithful and to be obedient to wherever he might send us. For Paul and Barnabas, that meant they had to go where the Spirit sent them. And they also had to be bold and courageous in proclaiming this word because in their proclamation, they got a lot of pushback. Not just verbal pushback, but like people threw rocks at them. (laughs) They almost died. Now, I think there is uh, a lot about mission that actually makes this a very uncomfortable endeavor. I think that's why it's easy to kind of ignore and shy away from mission because uh, it necessitates, I think, some level of discomfort. If the Spirit is sending, then it might require moving to a place that we don't necessarily want to go. It might mean uh, also uh, including people who disturb the dynamics of the community as the inclusion of Gentiles did to the Jewish community. It might mean enduring and experiencing hardship and persecution. It might even mean directing your attention away from uh, your own people, just as Paul did as he focused his mission on the Gentiles. Uh, Everybody, I I imagine, is going to be different. Every church will be different. Um, And it's going to be difficult, uh, personally, to engage in mission unless, and this is my final point, unless... There is a genuine, deep affection for Christ himself. I have said, I don't think engaging in mission necessarily means, like, you know, uh, I hope you don't picture, like, oh, talking to people in a condescendingly, condescending way and saying, hey, I know the truth and you don't, uh, or saying, like, oh, we have the answers and you don't, or saying, hey, we're better people, or or any of that. I hope that's not what you're imagining. I think we engage in mission as if we accidentally discovered the greatest restaurant in the world, right? Or accidentally heard the greatest song in the world and we simply want to share the beauty of that with others. I say accidentally because it means we are not initiators of our own faith or salvation, but we kind of stumble upon it because of the grace of God. That for whatever reason, He calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light. For whatever reason, he gives us the little faith that we need to receive and accept the gospel and to rejoice in the salvation that he offers, just like these Gentiles did, even as they're kind of overhearing Paul talk in the synagogues to the the Jews. They kind of accidentally stumbled upon the grace of God. And I say a great restaurant or a great song because... I think these are things that fill us with like deep joy. Right? It fills our not just our stomachs, but we, we feel like so deeply satisfied after a great meal or after a great song, like it leaves this like deep emotional impression upon us and maybe we're left in awe. And uh, I think I think the gospel is supposed to do that to us. It's supposed to make us feel full, satisfied. It's supposed to leave us with this uh, emotional sense of awe. Because why, friends, Jesus died on the cross for us, for us. And not only does that remove the burden of sin and condemnation from us, but there's also a positive element where now his glory also fills us and we no longer walk around as people who are empty, longing for things to to fill us. 
when our affections for Jesus grow because we experience God's grace in profound ways, I do think that mission simply becomes an extension of those affections. We want to go where, we will want to go where the Spirit send us because we've accidentally stumbled upon this great treasure that we have found, that because of God's grace, He enabled us to find it. And because we have this great treasure, it's like, man, uh, I want people to know about this treasure because it's so wonderful. And I think that's ultimately what mission is. I think that's probably what drove somebody like the Apostle Paul. I think that's somebody what drove somebody like Barnabas. Who Barnabas is an ama- uh, amazing figure if you think about it. He, he sold everything, right? He sold his land. Uh, and then he ends up going with Paul on this uh, missionary journey. And uh, what, like why, what would compel somebody to do something like that, to basically give up the own comforts of their lives and what they, they wanted? I think it's like a, a deep affection, uh, a truly profound encounter with the risen Christ. And therefore, as we consider our mission, uh, I don't think we can consider it apart from uh, our own sense of uh, our own sense of affection for Christ, our own relationship with Christ. But if, by way of the Holy Spirit, in worship, in prayer, maybe in fasting, um, God encounters all of us in these powerful ways. I think mission comes. I think the heart for mission comes. And when that happens, really the sky's the limit because there is no limit with the Holy Spirit. And as he opens doors and we follow and we walk through, uh, he does a great work that we get to participate in. Let's pray. God, as we end the sermon, uh, reflecting on cultivating our own affections for Christ himself, um, I guess that's where we want to begin to pray. God, we pray uh, in the midst of uh, a lot of of things that distract us. You know, not just uh, distract us in terms of time, but maybe our emotional energy and our mental energy and... um, and maybe that takes away the time to cultivate uh, a deep relationship with you and to think about higher things than simply, um, I don't know, our jobs and our schedules and uh, kids' activities and schools and all those things of which are good things and things that we ought to be thinking about. But definitely not at the expense of considering who you are and what you've given to us. You've extended your hand of grace to us. You've included us into this great plan of salvation that we now get to come and be part of your kingdom, citizens of your kingdom, that you now call us sons and daughters and we get to belong into your family, that you now offer us this inheritance that's imperishable and unfading. And you you simply call us to uh, lift our hands and receive. And it's in this posture of uh, receiving that you enter into our lives, into our hearts.
And as we receive, I do believe somewhere in that you begin to cultivate within us uh, this heart of mission and for the nations to, to know you and to experience your glory. So I pray uh, before anything, uh, help us to receive. Give us the faith to receive and to be filled by you. In Jesus' name we pray.